Well, first of all, there are far more David Mitchells in the world than are strictly necessary. I don't know if you've spotted that. There are a lot of us, and uh, we have a hive mind. We're all more or less the same, whether a comedian, an author, a lawyer. Um, so anyway, but um, I think we should really commend Philip on his 10K run. Has that been celebrated? Yeah. Do we know the time? Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it was not 60 minutes. It was not 59 minutes. It was not 58 minutes. It was not 57 minutes. In fact, his time was less than his age. Wow. 30 minutes. 55 minutes, Philip Donati. Round of applause. Mark Davis, 41 minutes. Wow. But Mark is over your child, isn't he? I mean, he's a youth, isn't he? A, a, a stripling. Um, okay, I want to talk to you a little bit about the image of God tonight. It's a kind of bit of a conversation. So if I say to you, by the way, Philip, no notes. Wow. Sorry about that. Couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, but I'll, I'll be letting Philip down if I have notes. If I've prepared, I'll be letting him down. Um, <laughs> I've got a Bible there. <laughs> um, if I ask you to visualise God, if I said, all right, think about God, I wonder what images come to... In fact, take a moment just to do that. The image of God. What, what is the image of God for you? All right. Let me ask you a question then. How many of you have got uh, an image that's visual at all? Or is it just sort of like a... Words. Who's got words but no, no visual image? Okay, quite a few. Anyone got a visual image? All right, how many of you with, with, who've got a visual, visual image? Is it, it's a man. It's, it's masculine. It's got a kind of... Anyone got a feminine image of God in their mind? All right, well, that's just an interesting start. Let me just read from Genesis chapter 1. And it says this. God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And just as a little detail there, God created men and women in his image. And there's something uh, really challenging for the church about what it means for the image of God to be feminine as well as masculine, I think. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I, I did this exercise with a, with a small group of, of friends of mine. And, and yet, again, one person could visualise God as feminine sometimes. But um, yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because how is that, that orientation that we have around seeing power and masculinity held together affected the history of humanity? One of the things that Genesis goes on to do is to describe a story about woman and an interaction with this creature called serpent. 
and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk on that more. But uh, I suppose one of the things that I want to just reflect on when we think about the image of God is that I'm going to see the image of God in human beings, men and women. Now, in the next little section of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, we, we have the story of Adam and Eve and, and the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I, I'm suggesting that many of us will know that story, whether we're, we're kind of from a Christian background or not. It's kind of like an iconic story for the whole world, isn't it? And, um, but uh, I'm going to read you a little section too from Genesis chapter 3. And what's happened is that um, there's been some boundaries around eating the fruit. Uh, Eve has been slightly seduced into eating the fruit by um, the serpent and then offers some to Adam and he eats. And it has consequences. And one of the consequences is um, that Adam and Eve are no longer able to stay in this paradise that they're in. And, um, and there are other consequences that, that play out, including for the serpent. God said to the snake, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly. You'll eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your, your offspring and hers. He'll crush your head. You will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. When God made human beings in his image, he made them good. He made them agents, partners for him in stewarding the amazing material creation that he'd made. And in many ways, the Garden of Eden is a bit like a temple where God could be worshipped and known and, and people can enjoy fellowship with God. And there's something deeply distressing for the human race in that breaking of that fellowship that, that rumbles on throughout the millennia. And one reason why that fellowship is broken, we, we think as Christians, is, is I think we believe that as well as a good God who created a good creation and created people, men and women, in his image, there is also a spiritual power in the world, a power of evil, that is against God. And the Bible has different names for that power of evil. Sometimes it's Satan, sometimes it's the devil. And uh, Sometimes today people are uneasy with the idea that um, we can personify evil in that way. But my, my feeling is that um, it's, it's crucial to our understanding of reality, that there is a malicious power of evil that is anti-God, and therefore anti the image of God, and therefore anti-human beings, anti-men and anti-women, and actually hates the image of God in us. And my conviction, both from Scripture from the history of the world, a little bit from psychology and philosophy, and a little bit from my own experience, is that there are uh, powers out there, evil powers, that want to pervert or oppress or destroy the image of God in human beings. And I think, if you like, the strategy of evil is how can I destroy the image of God when I see it. And the, the perversion of the image starts right here in the Garden of Eden story, where the relationship that God had in mind for human beings was, first of all, community, men and women living and functioning together in harmony, just like God creating in his own image, God in community. The Bible reveals God as a community because God is love. 
A love has a beloved. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's what, who we believe in as Christians. We're following this, this God who is one and yet community in this mysterious way, not less personal than we are, but more personal. And that for, therefore, for God to create in his image, it's in diversity and community, in harmony, in resonance, man and woman, in his image. And there's something about the, the initial breaking of the image of God that brings a disharmony between men and women. And instead of... Um, love and cherish, you get desire and dominate coming in. And the relationship between woman and man is where it says, he will rule over you. There's this initial command to, to men and women to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, that you could say represents some of the archetypes. We think about femininity and fertility and creativity and masculinity about power and, uh, and um, subjection, if you like. But where these things may be held in a healthy way and in harmony together, that men and women in cooperation are able to rule the world well and be fruitful and multiply well. When this relationship is broken, this primal command becomes something very distorted. And we find that there's something that happens in the whole realm of being fruitful and multiply straight off that goes wrong. And childbirth is now painful and difficult. And there's something about the harmony between men and women that goes wrong. There is, he will, your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. And, um, and it's interesting too, I don't know if you picked it up, but, but God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's a very kind of specific, and it goes on to say... Um, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this kind of ancient story, Christians apply to Jesus. We apply to Jesus, the son of Mary, the offspring of woman, as the one who crushes the head of serpent, who, when he dies on the cross, breaks the power of evil and, of course, is bitten in the process, who suffers in the process. And I, 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 my own feeling about, and this is a little bit speculative and, and uh, imaginative on my part, but I, I kind of, I feel that human history has been deeply distressing and stacked against womankind. And that there's been um, a painful history for women of, so often, of domination at the hands of powerful men. And I think that so often men are actually acting out satanic strategy. Because in their collusion with power, with fallen power, with the power that's the power of the material kingdom rather than the power of the kingdom of heaven, they've missed God's original design and have become so often abusive and dominating instead of releasing, empowering, and lateral and uh, in fellowship with. And I think that one reason why that is is because there is an ancient grudge between the serpent and the woman because right from the very beginning, the enemy of ourselves knows that it's through woman that God is going to bring his only son into the world to bring salvation to us. And, you know, the, the power of evil bears a grudge. It's interesting, if you, can, you can see in revenge drama, in kind of um, 
in criminal gang life, in broken relationships, the power of the grudge, the power of the, you've done this and I'm going to make you pay, or you represent this, I'm going to hurt you. And that in itself is opposite to the kingdom of God, because God is love. And love does not keep that kind of record, even when it's justified. Love keeps no record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13 says, as Paul beautifully describes love. But there's something about the grudge and the rivalry and the malice and I'm going to get you and the, all that kind of behaviour that we often see actually in human behaviour. I'm, I'm thinking of, 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 of a friend of mine right now who, who is the victim of a, really of, of a deeply evil person who has been criminalised uh, and is, is criminal in their behaviour but also bears a grudge because they were caught out, you know, and is just yeah, behaving really horribly. And, and, and I see this many times in, in human, human life, you know. And I, I think this is ultimately pictured here in this relationship between woman and the power of, of evil. So I want to apologise as a man. <laughs> on behalf of mankind, which is a bit presumptuous of me, but for, for the way, actually, that, that so many women have been treated. And I want to apologise for women in the church who've experienced that. And I want to come on to talk about the church in a moment. But what I want to say is this to you, men and women, here tonight. That when God made you, when you were designed by the creator of yourselves, you were designed to look like him. But you've got an enemy that will want to make you ultimately look like a devil. And most of us, as, you know, we're somewhere in between. <laughs> you know, actually, you, when we see the extreme of evil, when we see the, the totalitarian dictator, when we see the authors of genocide, where we see those people like Hitler, to, you know, cliche. But what, what we see there is somebody who dehumanized their opponents. And they, they, we see them kind of. You know, a concentration camp, people naked and stripped and in prison uniforms with shaved heads and, and treated like things and totally dehumanised. And in fact, um, the, the, the word that the, the, the Germans used about um, the Jewish nation was a louse, a, a subhuman. You know, that dehumanising was their strategy. Because a human being is made in the image of God and is to be lifted up and celebrated, but the enemy wants to dehumanise. And we talk about something being inhumane when it's cruel and unkind and unpleasant, don't we? And we talk about um, a humane behaviour when it's elevated, when it's compassionate, when it's serving. And that's because human beings are designed to be made in the image of God. And so Satan, if you like, will pervert the image of God. And he'll pervert in all kinds of ways. He'll pervert the image of God through the abuse of power so that people become abusers. He will pervert the image of God through offering pleasures that become addictions, that drive us into the kind of cravings and behaviour that actually make an addict lie to their mother and become just a caricature of themselves. Satan will destroy the image of God by trapping us in anxiety and fear and helping us, making us live in, in boxes and shadows. Sickness itself is a, in some ways a, an oppression. And, and Satan will, will oppress human beings by inviting persecution on them. 
as we persecute other human beings, we fall into the image of the, the evil one. And what I want to suggest to you is that God wants to restore the image in you. I was reflecting last Sunday, I was a Sunday morning at Woody's Central, we had um, a dedication of a little girl. And this little girl was someone who'd been much loved and wanted because her parents took 11 years from the time they wanted to have kids before they could actually, through IVF and several rounds of treatment, actually have a baby. And they were <coughs> just celebrating just this little girl's life. And you can imagine the, the joy of that occasion. And she is such a fantastic little girl, little Rosa. And, and she's, um, she's friendly and um, she knows she's so loved. I, I, you know, first time I spent some time with her, you know, I, I went to visit the family, you know, I was in the living room and mum went out to make a cup of tea and left her with me. And you know, she's a toddler, has been left with this strange man. And she was nice to me. She made me welcome. She, she was friendly. She was just like really wholesome. And when you, you have a little child and you dedicate them to God, you want to pray that the image of God would be kept in them that they would grow up and thrive, you know, that they would be like the prayer of Jesus, you know, that, that, you know over Jesus, that he would, you know, you know, grow in stature and wisdom and favour. You want to pray all those things. You don't want their lives to be distorted and perverted through evil people or through evil behaviour. And we, we, we care for our kids, don't we? But in the same service, we had a, a, a testimony of a, of a guy who's just come to faith and through, through Woody's actually, uh, having been through a background in recovery. He's a, being part of a cocaine anonymous group and a number of those guys have been coming along to Woody Central at the moment. And, um, and I guess he talked about uh, his background and his experience of prison and his experience of addiction. But having come to faith and found Jesus and, and how it was different. And what, what I saw in this guy was humanity being restored in him. And, and that's what I love about um, what Jesus does he always restores the image of God in broken people. He rescues them from the powers that are too strong for them and have distorted and wounded them, and he, he makes them whole. And so in, in his life, in the Gospel, we see Jesus. We see a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and so she's richly an outcast because the religious system she's part of makes her an outcast. And um, she's just has faith so much she reasons, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And, and when she touches Jesus, a power goes out of him, and he calls her out. He doesn't do that to embarrass her. He does that to restore and affirm her. He says to her, woman, your faith has healed you. It's about you. And he restores her in society. You know, he does that so often with untouchables and with lepers who are on the edge. He touches them. And their humanity is brought back. They're brought back into community. They're brought back and restored. It's beautiful, the work of Jesus, isn't it? It's lovely. He does that with a demonized human being, a demonized man, who's kind of, he's been treated like an animal. People are scared of him. He's living in the tombs. He's cutting himself. He, he's, he's got this supernatural strength. And when he meets Jesus, he's restored and clothed and in his right mind. And Jesus sends him into his community. Go back and tell them how much God's done to be. He restores people. He takes the Mary Magdalene from whom seven devils have been cast out, you know? And uh, she is like an apostle to the apostles. He makes her a minister. He takes a victim and turns him into a minister. She's the first person who sees Jesus risen from the dead and given that commission by him to go and tell my brothers, go ahead of me, find me in Galilee. 
He's always doing that. Men and women. He particularly loves to do it with women, doesn't he? He just elevates them, lifts them up. It's fantastic. And so I just want to say to you, all of you tonight, you can lean into the image of God in your life or you can collude with the devil. Honestly, from time to time, you're going to be tempted to become people who hate rather than love. And I think there's spiritual power available to help you to hate. It just doesn't come from God. But what you'll find is that if you hate someone in one area, it will affect your heart in every area. And you'll become a harder-hearted person than you were designed to be. On the other hand, you could be someone who chooses a way of forgiveness. And like the God of love, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It always hopes, it always perseveres. You could choose to ask for the grace of God to help you forgive things. And find that instead of becoming hard-hearted, your heart stays soft. And in fact, grows softer and expanded. There's more room for your relationship with God. Because you're identifying with the one who's a forgiver. And I want to encourage all of us to think about what it means to lean into the image of God in us and say no to the image of darkness that the enemy wants to offer instead. In, in Colossians chapter 1, we see what the image of God looks like, the invisible God who we haven't seen. And it says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. If we want to know what God's like, let's look at Jesus. <coughs> Jesus Christ who reveals God to us. This is what, what compassion looks like. This is what mercy looks like. This is what courage looks like. This is what healing looks like. This is what welcome and inclusion looks like. This is what God's heart is for people. Who is it condemns you? Neither do I condemn you. But leave your life as sin. Someone who supports and encourages, who challenges, but also gives the capacity to change. Who, who takes someone who's a nobody, like a Peter, and says, I see treasure in you. On you, on this rock, I'll build my church. And one of the things that we're called to do in our mission in this world is see the treasure in people and call it out. Because it's not just you that the image of God is in. You're living and working alongside people every day who are made in the image of God. They may not know God. They may not know him by the, in the same way that you know him. But the image of God is in them. And we can react to people around us with fear or with faith. You know, we can... We can call out from them the image of God, even if they're a little bit, you know, maybe they don't treat us quite as well as we'd like to be. Let's affirm and call out the good things in them, because we can really help that. And, and I think that part of, of, of what, what the Christian mission actually is, is to see the image of God in someone and affirm it and help them to begin to understand the reason that you love to help people, the reason you... You know, in the office, you're just kind of the, the, the guy who's, who always notices the birthdays and, and multiple, or whatever it is, or the reason you give to charity or you go out on a soup run or do the things that you do is because you've made the image of God. And actually, there's more for you than, than you yet have. And maybe where people are displaying the negatives rather than withdrawing from them, maybe we can draw near to them. Jesus drew near to 
Adam and Eve. They didn't hide from him. He hid from them. And sometimes we're called to draw near to people who are a bit threatening, a bit scary. We can't quite see the image of God yet unless God shows it. Reach out to them. I could talk more about that, but um, I, I want to just talk a little bit about the church being in the image of God. But oh, I'll just give you a little Bible reading. Colossians 3, I love this one. I think it backs up what I was trying to say to you. So in Colossians 3, it says, oh, look at that. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Those are things that we've been offered by the unclean powers, haven't they? But now, you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander. Filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of his creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all and is in all. And that's a great passage, isn't it? It's kind of saying, we can see the image of God, all those people. One of the things that we, we do in human culture is we other people who are not like us. And some of them are less human than we are. They've got a different skin colour. They're slightly less human. It doesn't matter if they've got less money than I have because they're not quite as human as I am. Or whatever it is. Or, or their ideology, we other them. But, but Jesus sees his image in every human soul and wants us to have that restoration of the image, to put off the old stuff, put on the new stuff. And by the grace of God, he wants to help us. But here's another thing. If we are in the image of God and Satan hates that image and wants to pervert or oppress it, the church is the body of Christ. It's the, in the image of Jesus. The community of faith that we're part of is in the image of Jesus. And in just the same way, the enemy of our souls wants to pervert or oppress it. And the history of, I talked about the history of womankind, which has got some dark stuff in it. You know, the history of the church has got some dark stuff in it too. And that's because the church has an enemy. The book of Revelation describes you know, the, the woman and the dragon and, and that kind of conflict. In symbolic terms, it's talking about the malice that Satan has towards the church. And what Satan would love to do with the church is, I think, to pervert it. To make it... You know, Philip introduced me as the Grand Vizier. He could have said the Grand Inquisitor. But, um, you know, what, when, we, when we think about the Inquisition, we think of the perversion of the church. When we think about power that's been mishandled in the church, when we think about the church ceasing to be the servant of the world, but becoming a dominator, what we see is the upside-down kingdom that God introduces through Jesus Christ into the world. It's as if somehow the other stuff has come back into the church. And so we have to be deeply rooted in the character of Jesus Christ to understand what it means for the church to be the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, there's um, talk about worship and communion. And in, um, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says to the church, look, when you come together, your meetings do more harm than good. Why? Because you're disunited. 
And when you're disunited, you're not in the image of Christ because there's no division between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's something about unity which is essential to the image of God. Jesus said, you know, by this will all men know that you're my disciples because you love one another. And if that is fractured and broken, then you'll no longer bury the image of, of, of God. And, and, and Paul goes on to describe the, the communions at the times they have, the love feast, the, the celebration of the bread and wine. And say, so, well, actually, when you have that, it's not really that what you're doing because there are divisions among you. And he says, you're, you're the body of Christ, but you're sick. And, and the spiritual sickness is being mirrored in your physical sickness. And he goes on at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 to talk about, you know, you've all got different parts to play. And he says, you are the body of Christ. So I just want to ask you, Metro, what is Satan's strategy for Metro? And what is God's strategy for Metro? And how can you lean into God's strategy and not lean into Satan's strategy? That might sound like a really extreme bit of language. So I'm using the word Satan. But I, I, I feel that, you know, behind the greys that we live in, there are these, you know, we're not, I'm not dualistic. Satan can't, he can only pervert what God's made. He can't do it off his own back, you know? But he, he, he will offer alternatives. He's done that from the very beginning because that's what he did to Jesus, didn't he? The temptations in the wilderness. He offered him power. Do it this way. Don't go the way of the cross. Don't go the way of the upside-down kingdom. Don't go the way of suffering. Don't do that. There's, there's an easier way. There's a more flamboyant way. There's a more spectacular way. Why? You could throw yourself off the temple. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Why not do that? People will believe in you and follow you. The power to be flamboyant and to dominate, rather than the power of the one who serves, who washes his disciples' feet, this is how Jesus reveals power. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what this new creation community that's going to come into the world is going to look like. The greatest among you will be as one who serves. And uh, I guess my appeal to you, my appeal to me, my appeal to us, we have seen the church in the Western world drawn through the muck and mire not because we are coming up against powerful persecutors yet, but because we've let the king of this world drive the way we do church. And it's been flawed and found wanting. And when it's been exposed, the reputation of the church has been dragged through the mud. And it's deeply distressing because what the church is meant to look like is much more like Mother Teresa than Hillsong, for example. You know, it really is. It's meant to be, to be looking like, how do you handle power and influence? How do you handle mercy and forgiveness? How do you handle unity and love? How do you handle all that kind of stuff? So, um, I guess my prayer for, for, for the Woodland Church family it's been very much on my mind. It's been painful, actually, uh, this, these recent weeks as we've kind of faced stuff for our brothers and sisters that look like us and thinking, well, hmm, do I see myself in, in that mirror too? And how can I lean into what it means to be in the image of God as a church? You know, I think I look at you, a whole bunch of young people, 
I don't want to see your lives distorted by the enemy. I want to see you increase in your capacity for goodness. I want to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit growing in your life. I want to see more love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and gentleness and self-control. I want you and us, you know, as a wooden church family in this city to be a, an exemplar of, oh, what does God look like? I see it in those people. You know, in a sense, I could use theological language, the church is meant to be an eschatological community. We're meant to be a people who are demonstrating the wisdom and glory of God to a watching world. We're not just messengers, we are the message. We are. And so we've got to love one another deeply and powerfully. We've got to forgive one another. We've got to have wisdom. We've got to use power differently. We've got to use money differently. We've got to align our priorities alongside God's priorities. And that's going to take us saying no to the temptations that will come our way and have come my way and will come your way. And yes, the Spirit of God, who wants to shape us for eternity. I'm going to pray. I want to thank you, Father God, for the beautiful men and women in this room who you love and know and made, you made them in your image. And I want to thank you, Lord God, that you want to give them your spirit so they can walk with you and keep in step with the Holy Spirit and have a secret history with you, which means that they shine like stars in their generation. Today, Holy Spirit, will you come and bring your beautiful challenges into our life? Will you help us say no to things that we need to say no to and yes to you and your will? But I want to pray for us as a community, Lord God, that we might, as the church, look more like the people of God, the people that God intends us to be. Help us to say yes to you as a community. Help us to know the wisdom of God. Help us to be the body of Christ. Lord, we commit ourselves again to seeking the lost, to serving the poor, to loving your image wherever we see it, to practicing unity, to speaking well of one another, to being generous with our money, to honouring all that you honour. We pray that in our church family, God, there would be a right um, use of power. We pray that women, particularly, who sometimes been oppressed, shut down, marginalised, exploited, would know the dignity of being raised up by the one who lifts up the needy from the ash heap and seeks them with princes. That's the way you're always working, Lord God. We pray that you do that in our day and our time. In Jesus' name. Amen.